also think part of why my coming out process was so smooth and easy was because I couldn't really pass. I was pretty queenie, I was pretty femme. Like, I don't think anyone has ever assumed I was straight. Hello and welcome to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And this week's guest is Isaac Oliver. Isaac was born in Baltimore and moved to New York for college in the early noughties. His debut book, Intimacy Idiot, was released in 2015 to widespread acclaim. New York Magazine have described him as a monstrous new talent and the book featured on a number of best of lists that year. I read it during the earlier stages of lockdown and it was exactly what the doctor ordered. It provided me with some much needed light relief in these very strange and worrying times. Intimacy Idiot details all the hilarious encounters Isaac has had with men while stating in the Big Apple. His dry wit and observational writing style really reminded me of another American and one of my favourite writers, David Sedaris. Some have described Isaac as a gay Carrie Bradshaw, but I think he's far funnier and much better, actually. He has also written for HBO's High Maintenance and Glow, which is currently on Netflix, and I've started watching it myself recently. Our transatlantic call took place a few weeks back, and we chatted about what inspired him to write a book on dating, why his religious parents were so accepting and open-minded, his production of Batman vs. Catwoman on skates as a child, how his parents discovered he was gay, what he would tell his younger self about dating, and lots of other things. Please follow me on social media if you want to leave feedback on this or any of the other interviews and for updates on future episodes. I can be found at I'm Coming Out Pod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. and Here it is. Hello, Isaac. Welcome to my podcast. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the interview because I can imagine you're uh, very, very busy. So what are you up to? You'd be surprised. (laughs) Really? Well, I suppose during a pandemic, things quieten down a bit, but I (laughs) imagine you're still writing and you've got loads of deadlines and Zoom interviews and whatnot. That's very kind of you to assume, and I really hate to disabuse you of the notion, but I, my dance card is pretty empty right now because, yeah, I mean, America, as, as I'm sure you're seeing, we are um, kind of marching off a cliff with this pandemic, and so it's really, uh, li- life, life, is, life is not normal here, so we're all kind of in our apartments, and you would think, I'd hoped, I'd hoped this would be sort of a time when I would be writing or really burrowing down and, you know, doing lots of self-examination and lots of, you know, creative sparking. But it's a lot of sort of existential dread and like staring at the wall. So do you feel the stress of the pandemic and how it's been handled in America that almost overrides your professional interests at the moment? It's really hard oh, to sit sure. down and do some work when the whole country yeah. is a, a disaster. Well, it just it just casts a different light on anything you're trying. And, and so many of my writer friends are mm. going through the exact same situation. And, and look, I am very fortunate. It is not lost on me. I've had good TV jobs in the last few years. And so I thankfully have some savings and am able to sort of remain solvent and just just have just have some savings to live off of for a while. And that is not the case for the majority of Americans. It's really a mm. very scary time for a lot of people. And so all all that to be said, it, it is very hard to sort of sit down and think about what you would have written about before there was a pandemic. It kind of feels like any any topic, you know, from from the before times as we've started calling it, mm. there's a perspective shift, you know, it's just it, the 
the sort yeah. of who cares, the, the who cares factor is, is, is very big. And, you know, now that we're, now that we're almost six months into it here in America, it's, I, I do think I'm, I'm sort of coming full circle and realizing, well, there are still reasons to care about seemingly banal or mundane everyday topics. Absolutely. So as that pandemic has obviously impacted on every single area of our lives, that's really going to change the kind of creative work that you do, isn't it? Everything is going Mm -hmm. to be, including creative work, is going to be coloured by the pandemic now. So writing is almost as if it never happened isn't an option, is it? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to adapt my book, Intimacy Idiot, into a TV series, and I've been sort of trying to do that for a while and I and well thank you I appreciate that um more than more than you can know but I yeah I've been working on that for a while and was sort of getting to a place where I was you know sort of okay with how it was turning out and then you know the pandemic happens and you just think like well god I don't want to I don't want to write just a period piece set in 2018 you know just just because I don't know how to deal with a pandemic or how to deal with the world completely changing. But are you going to write about dating over Zoom and online dating? Because I know oh, in God. The Guardian, if you're familiar with the British newspaper, they have a dating column every Saturday. So they've continued with it during the pandemic. So they're oh, writing yeah. about Zoom dates. So oh, are you God. going to incorporate that into your writing maybe in some way? I mean, maybe I haven't. Um, and, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of pandemic content headed our way that's being filmed right now. Like there's a, there are a couple of Netflix shows and that are all being filmed about uh, over zoom and about kind of zoom relationship dating stuff. And so I kind of want to see how that plays out. I mean, and, and I and I have not attempted any Zoom dating or even in-person dating right now. I have a couple friends who are starting to go on dates again and and I haven't quite gotten there yet. That's not a that's not a my risk assessment is is a bit different than theirs. And you know, they're in they're person. In person. They're doing it socially distanced. You know, they the oh. dates are outside, they wear masks, they sit in a park, they sit six feet apart, they each bring their own meals, they they sit and talk. It just feels so like dystopian nightmare to me. Like the thought of yeah, dystopian. doesn't it? Yeah. You mentioned there about your memoir, Intimacy Idiot, which I read a few months back. I read it in two sittings, and I oh, absolutely thanks. loved it. It was no, you're welcome. I really did enjoy it. It was exactly what the doctor ordered. It was just what mm. I needed. I needed some light relief from the darkness and the bleakness of what's going on in the world right now. So I wanted to know what inspired you as a gay man to write about love and dating in the first place? Well, my favourite writer, I mean, it really is sort of my my forefathers, David Sedaris and, and David Rakoff and mm. Edmund White and... Augustine Burroughs, you know, like it, it really, you know, I, I, as a teenager, read all of their books and just loved and continue to love and be inspired by their writing and by their honesty and their humor and great insight. And so I went to school for playwriting. And so that that was what I was intending to do. But while I was in between ideas for plays, I just graduated from school, from college. Mm. I started this blog and I was just sort of chronicling like things that were happening in my daily life. I've always been so inspired by New York City. I've I've always loved living here. And so I would write down little scenes, you know, little, little bits of dialogue I overheard on the subway or conversations from, you know, between I, I was in a customer service job. And so things the customers would say to me or, you know, things that would happen on dates or hookups I had. This was back in the manhunt era and then transitioned into Grinder. I mean, I'm self-deprecating. I, I think I have a good sense of humor and a good sense of perspective about, about myself. But I also, you know, I, I also like observing other people. I like I like paying attention to other people and paying attention to lives that are very different from mine. And so this was an, a very much an accidental memoir. And I was trying to capture city life and, and, and city intimacy and then the different kinds of intimacies that, that can happen when you're living in a city and when you kind of only get 
a, a very narrow window into someone's life. And that includes sex and dating. I mean, all these hookups, I was, I was really, I, be, I began to become very fascinated by the energy around a hookup and sort of the air, the, the way the air would crackle with energy as we were getting dressed and that, that like awkward time where you often find out the person's name after you've hooked up or, you know, you sort of ask them what they do or, or even not just, just you would, you would say, you say things to each other kind of by virtue of knowing you'll never see each other again. And I just was very fascinated by that peculiar, particularly and peculiarly intense intimacy that I think is, is maybe only possible between queer people because we just don't subscribe to that same kind of Victorian courtship model. And do people ever draw comparisons between you and a certain TV character? I probably don't need to mention her name. Is that a lazy comparison? No, I'm actually curious who, because I, I that didn't come to mind. Are you thinking? Oh, a Carrie Bradshaw. Oh, Carrie Bradshaw. Are you like the gay Carrie Bradshaw? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that that comparison actually has happened, but it's been a while. I have heard that. I mean, and look, I I grew up loving Sex in the City too, and that was also very inspirational to me. I mean, it doesn't age well. I've been, I actually have rewatched a few episodes, and I'm like, oh God, Carrie is so excruciating. So um, I hope I'm not excruciating, but it does. <laughs> feel feel like a it feels like a fair comparison <laughs> yeah a lot of people have mentioned that it hasn't aged well has it it doesn't really work very well in 2020 does it yeah there, there's some there's some very just of the time there, there's a lot that's of the time it's pretty yeah. it's pretty bad on race it's pretty bad on trans issues it's pretty you know but it also i mean look it broke a lot of ground it, it, it was um it did a lot of good too. There has been so much social change uh, since it ended. When did it end? In the mid noughties, about 15 years ago. So Mm -hmm. I suppose it has been quite some time now. So when you grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, so when you were growing up, what was your awareness of homosexuality? I, uh, I had some awareness of it. I mean, I remember very vividly my parents took me and my brother, my younger brother, to Washington, D.C. when the AIDS quilt was being displayed there. And we went to see that. And I remember looking around and seeing several couples of of gay men holding hands. And I remember, I don't remember what I felt looking at that. It wasn't like this sort of like, blue streak of recognition, you know, to quote Tony Kushner, but it, it, it was, um, I just remember that. I remember that, that, that imprinted itself on me. I, I, I think I was maybe seven or eight at that time. And there, this was a time that there weren't really a lot of gay characters on television. Like I, I remember in my preteens, like there, there was the guy on Melrose place and, and maybe a couple other characters, but I really, I really began to become aware of it through reading and through books. And, but I also, you know, like my own, my, my desires became apparent very early on. So I never really, like, I remember in early, like sixth grade, seventh grade, my best friend taught me how to masturbate and we would, we would watch movies together and like jerk off together and but he so what age were you at this time that was so, sorry sixth grade yeah kind of sixth seventh eighth grade yes yeah, sixth grade i forget how old i was in sixth grade good lord so 10 or 11 yeah yeah and we would watch like not porn we would watch like feature films together and whenever there was a sex scene we would like take out our dicks and start masturbating and he would always be talking about the women you know and and purportedly you know i was I, I i never really added much to the conversation but that i, I think by all mm. appearances sake that's what i was doing as well but i was looking at the men and it was uh 
And it was just very clear to me. And I think for many years, you know, before I was even a teenager, I think I just assumed I was bisexual. I assumed like, oh, what, you know, everyone else around me, all the other boys around me are into women. So that, uh, that side of me will awaken soon too, you know, like that, that other half will, will kick in. You know, I assumed that I just thought I was bisexual, you know, that, that was just sort of my like quiet assumption. And I wasn't terribly alarmed. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I grew up in a very loving, progressive household. I mean, my parents, my, my dad used to be a minister. He's now retired, but you know, so they're religious, they're spiritual, but they are very much on the right side of history. You know, they're very social justice oriented. They're very, you know, they're, they're, they're progressives. And so. So your father is a minister. So that's within some Christian division, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Protestant minister. Okay. So I. But they're very open and liberal. Very, yeah, very. Mm-hmm. Very, very accepting. And, and. And they both told me later in life, you know, they they also knew from a very early age that I was gay and they were preparing for it. They, they kind of did the work, you know, on their own. And so by the time okay. I was ready to sort of admit anything, they were they were ready for it. They, they were very accepting. And so I kind of it wasn't like the these feelings toward of desire toward men didn't alarm me when I was growing up. So I, I I wasn't scared by that. But I did sort of think, oh, I'll feel something for women soon. You know, like, I think it hadn't quite occurred to me that I was any sort of other yet. You know, I think at that age, it just, uh, I don't know, it, it felt, I think maybe I even felt like, oh, maybe all boys go through this, like our desires are forming, and they can shape shift and whatnot. Oliver, your parents sound incredible. If only everyone's parents were as informed and as open-minded. Oh, yeah. They really do sound great. And did you have, you mentioned there that you had a brother. So what did you have any other siblings? No, I, ju- I just have a younger brother, Nathan. He's three years younger. And so, as you mentioned there, your parents already, they had a good idea that you were gay mm-hmm. growing up. You touch on that in the book as well. So not to buy into stereotypes or anything, but I had quite a few of similar indicators as you did that I might <laughs> be gay. So can you tell me a bit more about that? Oh, sure. There's photos yeah, as well. There are, there are a lot of great photos. Photographic evidence. Yeah I, yeah. I mean, I was obsessed with movies. I was obsessed with Disney. And I always... And this was when I was even younger. I mean, this was when I was, you know, five, five, six, seven. I always wanted to be the leading lady. I always wanted to be the heroine of all these movies. So, you know, I was, Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with Disney. And so I would dress up. I would, I would put on my mother's heels. I would put on her skirts and I would twirl around on the bed. Like I was Julie Andrews in the Sound of Music opening. I would dress up as the nannies and Mary Poppins and I would, and I would stage these like elaborate scenes. I would turn on all the all our box fans. I'd like turn on, I'd line up all the box fans and turn them on so they'd be the wind blowing and I would be the nannies like blowing away in oh. the opening of Mary Poppins. And and then I would, I, I would dress up as Wendy from Peter Pan and I would walk the, I, I would stand on the, the arm of the sofa and that was the plank, you know, and I would walk the plank and my brother was Captain Hook and he would make me like, jump off the plank and then I would be sleeping beauty I'd like I'd like put on all my mother's necklaces and I'd like lie down on the sofa and be asleep and my brother I'd make my brother be the prince and he'd have to come and like kiss me on the cheek and wake me up I mean my poor brother but um (laughs) but and as I say in the book like I have all these photos of this and I loved Catwoman I was obsessed with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman which is I still am it's iconic so so I got I had like a Catwoman Halloween costume and a Catwoman backpack. And there are all these photos that are incredible. And as I say in the book, like I have these photos because my parents took those photos, you know, like it is not lost on me that like holding the camera were two parents who were not even just letting me be me, were like encouraging me and, and participating and helping me. I don't take it for granted now because as I got older and 
got into high school and college and met other queer people and, and certainly became more aware of the horrific, devastating, inhumane ways in which other queer people come of age, I, I certainly do not take that for granted anymore. It just, I don't know, I, I won the parent lottery. I really did. I really, really did. And you know, we we have we have our we have our struggles. I mean, they it's hard for them how how sexually explicit my work is. You know, they're they're very waspy and very sort yeah. of you know they it it took them a while to come around to the notion. I mean, they were raised in a very sort of patriarchal, you know, again like that Victorian courtship yeah. model of like you grow up and you and you marry someone and that's who you have sex with and you have sex with the person you love and sex is an act of love. And that that's, you know, and they were encouraged, they, they were like, we want you to meet a man and we want you to have a husband and we want that, we want you sex to be an act of love between you and your husband. Like that, they, they've said that to me. And it's hard for them when I'm like, sex doesn't always have to be an act of love, guys. Like sex can be an act of many things. Your parents are really ahead, uh, were ahead of the times, weren't they? You're a 90s kid like me. It's almost like they were out of step with a lot of what was going on in society and the rest of the world so is that because do you think do they have a lot of gay friends or how come they have such a progressive mindset that's a very good question i mean they both grew up in in very small towns but i think i honestly think it's because they're creative people i mean they 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 were opera singers in college and so they they met at the eastman school of music in rochester and Music has been sort of what has connected them to their faith. Like my dad was a singer in his church choir and my mom was the same. And now, and even now her, she, she has a side job. She is the organist at a church. And so music has always been kind of the, their main passion in life. And it's how they met. It's what brought them together. And I think I think they have known gay people through their lives before I came into their life, but it's, it's, mm. it's not. And my mom now has a very close gay friend and my father has gay friends too. But I think it, I think it just was there. They were sensitive people, you know, they, they were creative people and they had, you know, an ear for music and, and just a sense of, of the world and, you know, world music and opera and, and culture, it just all kind of, it, it, it leaned them toward sensitivity and understanding and empathy. Yeah, they moved in quite creative and artistic worlds. Yeah, yeah. That's probably why. And you also mentioned in the book, you also did a production as a kid, which I would give anything to see a video of, <laughs> of Catwoman versus Batman on skates. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? And your neighbors actually came out oh, yeah. and watched it in your neighborhood and everything. Yeah, yeah. We grew up in, we grew up in Baltimore City. Uh, which is a very, you know, complicated city. I love that city. Very proud to be from there. But um, I, and this this was in my, I had just seen Batman Returns. I was fully obsessed with Catwoman. I think Madonna was supposed to get that role. Sorry oh, to interrupt she? there. That just popped in my mind. Yeah, I read that somewhere in some um, series of facts on some Madonna fan site. But anyway, oh sorry God. to interrupt. No, Carry no. on, Isaac. Sorry. Um, I'm so glad she didn't. Uh, no, no shade to Madonna, but it's Michelle Pfeiffer's. No, I understand. I, I'm her, a huge fan. Her role. It. It's okay. Um, so I had always been kind of like writing little plays and staging different things with my bar. Oh, that's the other thing. My parents had gotten me Barbies because I wanted Barbies. They, they they had a lot of time. They had, they had a lot of time to wrap their heads around who I was, <laughs> even yeah. even though I was sort of blithely unaware that I was any different than anyone else. So I was always sort of staging little little scenes or little battles between my my Barbies and my action my Batman action figures and things like that. And so I wrote this little script of Batman versus Catwoman, and then like cast it. I cast my there there were young there there were girls in the neighborhood available, but I decided that I I was the one who had who had it to play Catwoman. I, I had this, I had the stuff, you know, to play Catwoman. Yeah. And my brother was Batman, you know, it's, it's um a bit of nepotism there, you know, it's, and then 
and then the and then the other neighborhood kids were were cast as like concerned citizens of Gotham, and so we all got on our roller skates and we had like a couple rehearsals and I had a script, and we and so I just like was just this like bossy little bitch and just and just staged this roller skating fantasia battle between myself and my brother while the neighborhood kids you know interacted and had lines and you know tried to come in and fend off Catwoman but Catwoman prevailed against everyone and we made flyers and like handed them out around the neighborhood and and all the parents came out and like sat folding chair. It was in it was in an it was in our alley. So there were all these you know buildings that shared this alley. And so mm. all the parents came out and like set up folding chairs and had drinks and snacks. And they watched this this little show with just this gay little boy in his mother's slip, like meowing and um, prowling around, uh, you know, and hissing at everybody. <laughs> Just listening to you now, I'm actually feel jealous of your neighborhood. Mm. You sound like you have the nicest neighbors. I, if I had done anything like that in Ireland, in front of anybody I'd known, they would have they wouldn't have responded in the same way. Let's just put it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no. But that is incredible. It's really heartening to hear stories like that and to hear that you did have. Uh, you were allowed to be your authentic self and that you were encouraged and it's it's really great to hear that so when you you said there earlier that at first you thought you might be bisexual Mm -hmm. so when you were going through that period did you go through a long questioning period or was it quite short it was pretty short you know I mean as I got into like 11 12 13 it it really the the masturbating Mm -hmm kind of changed things you know like it it just became clear to me that oh i'm really only into the men like i'm really you know i was kind of waiting and waiting and waiting for attraction to like happen i remember printing out i mean this is this is in the era like where dial-up modems you know we would get online yeah i would you know do an alta vista search for you know like (gasps) Remember, Remember Alta Vista? You know, we'd do like a search yeah. for like Pam and Pamela Anderson or Kathy Ireland or um oh god, what's her name? Uh oh I forget. But um and I remember printing those pictures out and taking them up to my room. Like I would print out photos and like put them in this like jerk-off stash under my bed. And I and I and I thought, like, well, I should, I should be like aroused by them. Let, let me, let me try. You know, let me like look at these photos of them in their bikinis or these Playboy photos I found, and let me try. And I just, you know, my my heart wasn't in it. <laughs> and you know, something else wasn't. Yeah, in it I was just, I was just more interested in the photo of you know Jared Leto in a in a tank top. You know, it and it, it just became clear and. So when you were, first of all, grappling with your sexuality, if that's the right word, when when you were thinking about it and when you were trying to figure out your sexuality is a better way of putting it, did you fight against it or were you accepting of it? No, I, I didn't fight against it because at that point, like my parents were starting to take me to see plays and musicals that were in in town, you know, coming through Baltimore on tour. I was, I, I, you know, I, I went to a performing arts middle school and then a performing arts high school because I wanted to be an actor. And I just, I had, I had a theatrical sensibility and it was being encouraged. So I just didn't, um, there wasn't a lot of drama in my head, thankfully. I mean, I do think I I had some, like I I I began to to kind of be more aware of homophobia. Like I I heard my grandparents making some comment about like about AIDS at one point, and my cousin had said something about like wanting all gay people to go on an island and then be blown up, and like these are just these are just sort of things I remember. Like it was starting to sort of like pierce my periphery. 
I'm sorry you had to hear yeah. that. And just on that note, did you experience homophobic bullying during your school Not, years? I mean, like I said, I went to I went to performing arts high uh, performing arts high school. Oh, I mean, you'd, you'd be surprised it there weren't that many students that were openly gay. I mean, I was really one of the only ones at that point. But I mean, in middle school, I do remember the very first time I got called a faggot. Like I got pushed down. It was actually in elementary school that a boy called me a faggot. And we were like standing in line for something. And I don't know what happened. He thought I was standing too close to him or whatnot. I probably was like fantasizing about you know, Beauty and the Beast or something and just wasn't even paying any attention to where my body was in space. <laughs> but he pushed me to the ground and called me a faggot. And and then in middle school, I was sitting on a, we, we, were, we were having our opening day, like our, our first day of school assembly. And I was sitting, you know, we were all in rows in the auditorium and I was sort of playing with my seat. Like I was, you know, sort of sitting up and down in the seat and I accidentally like sat down and slammed the seat down and it like hit the boy next to me his knee had sort of jutted over and so the seat like crashed down on his knee and it hurt and it hurt him I mean it, you know it sucked like it but he screamed out and called me a faggot and it happened a couple times but it wasn't like I didn't have a bully or I didn't have people who kind of fixated on me in that way but but that that was when it started to become clear and this is yeah these are like the teen preteen teen years that was that was when my awareness started to change and it began to permeate like oh i am i am different than the norm and people can see that like people can clock that and people are people people are making sure to tell me that they're not like the way that i am that must have been a real shock to your system coming from such a safe home place. It was shocking. Place. It was shocking. And then when you started to hear yeah, it in yeah, school. Yeah, it was shocking. And I'm, I'm again, just, just very fortunate that, you know, it didn't derail me too much. You know, it really, um, thankfully, they were kind of isolated, one-off events. And just to go back there, you mentioned earlier about Jared Leto. This is my favorite yeah. question. So who were your teen crushes when you were a closeted gay? So I asked this to everybody because I'm really determined to make up for all that lost time during my adolescence when I couldn't talk about who yeah. I fancied. So I would really love to hear about who were your Oh, sure. Your teen I could crushes. talk about this all day. I mean, mine were... I was really, oh, I was, I was <laughs> I obsessed with Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Oh, he, he was really my number one for a very long time. I loved him. And Devin Sawa from Casper and. Don't know him. Okay. I'm going to Google should. him now. Let me see. So was he was he in the in movie, the movie Casper. Casper. Uh-huh. He played the, lie, the human boy version of Casper. And then he and Jonathan Taylor Thomas were in a movie together called Wild America, which was just like my Woodstock seeing that. I mean, it was incredible. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, he's still yeah. acting. He's, he's He looks kind of familiar. And then yeah. I really, I loved James Marsden on Second Noah. Yeah, movie star, yeah, me, James Marsden, and still very attractive. See, me Google him, beautiful man. Oh yes, yeah, and I recognize him. I, uh, Dean Kane on Lois and Clark. I was obsessed with him, and now he's a Republican nut job. So I am not obsessed with him. Uh, but, um, and yes, I've noticed all the men on Melrose Place. I was obsessed with them. I loved them, and mm. George Clooney on ER, and Sully. Oh yeah. Oh really? Yeah, no, I liked I liked case. the older men too. And then Sully on Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. I was obsessed with him. Um, still am. And Jared Leto, I had a couple photos of him. I mean, now these were the my so-called life years when he was real it was like peak Jared Leto. He was so beautiful. Now he seems like such an asshole. So I really uh th these aren't evergreen crushes. I had a there was a photo of Fabio, hilariously enough, that I used to jerk off to all the time but i just <laughs> loved his body and 
there was this book about Mark Wahlberg, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. They had this like biography, this like photo biography book that I used to check out of the library over and over and over again. This was also probably a clue to my parents that I kept checking out this book, but there it was like a biography about the Marky Mark and the Funky Bunches like rise to fame. And there was a section of photographs in the middle and you know, he was always in his Calvin Klein's gripping his junk and I yeah. jerked off to that book a lot and yeah and now he's an asshole too I mean it's all you know there, there's such a there's such a type but Ryan Philippe I loved Ryan Philippe Ryan Philippe like he gets all he gets his own yeah. paragraph in yeah. my book but it's like he was huge he he was he was I mean he was that I, I was a teenager then but like I mean I was I was obsessed with Ryan Philippe and he just he does not age. He still no, looks the same, no. and I think he's in his mid forties now. Yeah, he's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, he's discovered the elixir for youth, I think. <laughs> and a lot of my crushes were actually American, so you're a really good guy to talk to yeah. about these. So, did you? Rem- I had a huge crush on. Yeah, it's same as you, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Mm-hmm. I used to wait all day for Home Improvement to come on, and I mean, I, I never really liked the show, but I used to sit no. through it just for him. And he never got enough screen time. I mean, it was always about his dad and that neighbor over the fence. I'm oh, still angry about this. I know. And then, what happened to Jonathan? Jonathan Taylor Thomas became a director or a producer, didn't he? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's out of the business I, and, and, and happily, oh, happily out of the business. I don't think he wanted, he did go on to do like a couple things and, but I think he just hit his like mid twenties and, and I don't know, I, I did look him up in a few years ago and saw like, oh, he's just, yeah, I'm going to Google life. him now. Yeah. I think he got tired of all the screaming girls and all the screaming gay guys and he just Probably. went off and lived somewhere quietly. That maybe was it. And yeah. also another big crush I had. Do you remember Andrew Keegan? Sure. The guy with sure. the black Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that he's one that... of your crushes or not really. And he's now like started his own church in Los Angeles. So I heard yeah. that, yeah. You got it's it, it's you have to be adaptable with these crush, crushes. You have to have a go bag packed. Like you can't, you got to be willing to cut them loose because then they grow up and, you know, either become Dean Cain or they start their own churches. And it's just, it's trouble. Yeah, yeah. You can't hold um, too high of hopes for them. And did you ever have any girlfriends during those years? No, no. I also think part part of why my coming out process was so smooth and easy was because I couldn't really pass. I was pretty queenie, I was pretty femme and and still am. Like it's I I have never been someone who like I don't think anyone has ever assumed I was straight. You know, I there I I had very close girlfriends and during that time, like at parties, we would all as groups like play spin the bottle or play seven minutes in heaven and spin the bottle was like my first kiss and it was with a girl and, but it was, you know, it was like preteen, like peck on the lips and then everyone screams, you know, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and we got, and I got seven minutes in heaven with one of my friends and we just went in the closet and like talked. Isaac, are you like me? Are you a gold star gay? Have you ever been physically intimate with a woman? No, I haven't. I haven't. No, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it ever happening with me ever either. So how did you go about the coming out process? I, um, when I was 14, 15, 16, yeah, when I was, I was about to be 16 and it was very clear to me then that the friends who I had told that I was bisexual, I had you know, I had updated them that, uh, (laughs) that I was now fully gay and they were not surprised. And, but I hadn't told my parents yet. And, and I will confess that this was like the one point where I was a little nervous. I, I just was nervous because, you know, the narratives up to that point were, you come out to your parents and your parents throw you out of the house. Like that, that was, 
the narrative on TV. That was the narrative you would sort of read about in, you know, XY magazine. I don't know if you got XY magazine in Ireland, but um, no, it's, no. it's now defunct, but it was like, it was like the only sort of like gay teen publication. And it was very hard to get. And I like ordered it online or something, but, um, and it came like wrapped in a gray package, like it was porn. But I just, it was, it was like in that moment, my parents were other people. Like I, I just in my mind, like who, like, whereas like logical reasoning, I should have deduced that it would be okay to tell them I was gay, but it still was just so scary. And I think, and I think that is such a lesson of like, you can have the most like inclusive, uh, encouraging parents, but my parents had never said to me, like they, they had never said the word gay to me. Like that had never come out of their mouths. Like they'd never said, do you think you might be gay? Or, you know, okay. if you are gay, it's okay. They hadn't said that to me yet. They were kind of waiting for me to broach the subject. But so I think because it was unsaid, because it was unspoken, even though I knew how how supportive and encouraging they'd been. And I just, yeah, your, your mind sort of goes to, oh, this could change everything. This could change everything. That the, all, mm. And that actually made, that, that was what made it scarier. I was like, I'm afraid all that love will go away. I'm afraid all, all their support will go away, you know, because maybe they were thinking I was going to be straight after all of this time. But here I am to now tell them like, no, I'm gay. And you know, have, have I been sold a bill of false goods with, you know, these parents, but I actually didn't have to tell them because I, I had written a diary entry journal about all of this kind of just like trying to figure out how to tell them saying that I was gay, like writing it out in words. And then I'd written a poem about Brad oh. Renfro. Oh, I can't believe I forgot to mention Brad Renfro. May he rest was also like a really huge crush for me. I was obsessed with Brad Renfro. I'd written a poem just sort of essentially being like, I want to have sex with Brad Renfro and this is how I'll do it. And was it quite graphic? Yeah, it was graphic. I mean, I was working out my okay. desire at that point. I, I had been watching porn. I had been, you know, it was becoming clear to me, you know, what I wanted and, and that this could be possible. So I was, I was, you know, fantasizing and writing about that in my journal. And I then left my journal on my bed, literally open to that page. And then I had left a light on in my room and just like wandered off to like go downstairs and watch TV or something. And my dad went into my room first to just turn the light off. But then he saw that the journal was open on my bed, literally to that entry. And he read it. And, you know, at the time I was like, oh my God, you invaded my privacy. But I think I would most certainly do the same thing if my like teenage, if my teenage child like had their diary open on their bed, of yeah. course I would read it. Like I made it so easy for him. He didn't even have to open it. Like it was just like to that page. So, um, <laughs> so, and he, his argument was consciously, do you think you did yeah. that? That, that was his argument. He was like, he was like, I think you wanted me to read it. And it just, it just sort of ripped the bandaid off. You know, like I came upstairs from the rec room, from the family room, you know, where I was watching TV and like sat at the dining room table and my parents were there and they were like, we read your journal entry and, you know, we, this is something we've known about you for a long time and we love you and this doesn't change anything. And by the sounds of it, you have such an incredible family. They just seem so emotionally intelligent it's like it's only everyone's parents were as evolved and worldly as yours it'd be it yeah. would be incredible so when you came to new york then the gay community it can be quite diverse and there's a lot of disparate groups and it can be difficult to navigate and i imagine that's very true of the new york gay scene so do you feel like you found your place within the gay community yeah, I mean, I came came to New York for school, and so I for for college, and my community really was my friends at school. But oh. now my friend group is primarily gay men, and I love that. And and I mean, I would love to be friends with more gay women, and I and I that's that's on me actually to to seek out those friendships. But you know, I 
I'm fortunate that I, you know, the, the, the gay community in New York city is very segmented. You know, there, there are lots of bars and lots of community spaces, but they're all, they're kind of spread all throughout the city and like different, different sort of communities. There's not a lot of intermingling of communities. You know, you're, you're sort of hell's kitchen, icy vodka soda gays, you know, hang out in Midtown and then the Chelsea muscle Queens are in Chelsea. And then, you know, the like alt queers in Brooklyn are there, you know, at the Brooklyn bars. Mm. And, and then there are, there are some bars like Julius, uh, which is my favorite bar where there is a more diverse group, not just of like sort of types, but also ages and, you know, gender spectrums and, you know, and where it feels a little more, homey and less like a scene and that that bar feels very much like home to me and I don't know I just I I think in in many ways you make your own community and and mine is a lovely kind of mishmash of a lot of different kinds of people and speaking of New York I think that's a nice neat segue into my last question now. So if you could go back, if you could wind the clock back to when you arrived in New York City for the first time when you came to university, what would you tell your younger self, knowing what you know now about dating and about gay men? uh, What Mm. would you say to your younger self now? Mm. I would say, God, that's such a good question. I would say there's going to be a pandemic in, <laughs> in 17 years. Um, <laughs> apply for dual citizenship to some <laughs> welcoming country. No, I... Invest in Amazon shares. Oh, God. Something like that. Uh, no, I would say there are going to be... I, I would I would say there are going to be men who are interested in giving it a go with you and they may not be what you imagined, but you should give them more of a chance because there's not an endless supply of those men. There's not you're gonna you're gonna think that you'll meet more of those kind of men and they are more rare than you think. And so try a little harder, like give, give it a, be a little more open to them and, and don't be so afraid of their interest in you. God, this feels bleak. I don't mean for that to be bleak. I just, um, no, no, not at all. I I think a lot of people would agree with you. Yeah. I think like there, there, there have been a handful of really nice guys who really did try to like date me and be my boyfriend. And I was so, Uh, I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but just I was so kind of not ready for it or nervous or scared of intimacy. And I think I just thought, you know, I mean, it's the sex in the city sort of thought of like this, there's like an endless chain of suitors who will come along and it, and that's really not always the case. And I, um, and I think I would just say to myself, keep that person around a little bit longer before you sabotage it or before you say no to it. Like go on a couple more dates and just see what happens. See what happens. It might end anyway. It might end in total heartbreak and and be a total disaster, but that's okay. So you would say be more flexible in your thinking, be more open. Mm -hmm. And there isn't an endless supply of fish in the sea is what you're saying. Is that correct? That's correct. That's good advice. I'm going to take that on board. <laughs> There's a gay meme that goes around, isn't there? It's, I pray to God for Superman. And this mm. God is answering, yeah, I did send you Superman, but I sent you him as Clark Kent and you ignored right, him. Right, That's I'm paraphrasing. You get the gist yeah. of it. I think because I grew up so, so glued to movies and so glued to these romantic cinematic narratives that I just, yeah, you know, I think about, I mean, this is such a silly movie to bring up, but like Cruel Intentions, that scene where Reese Witherspoon is coming up the escalator and Ryan Philippe is waiting for her at the top. Like there are these big escalators in my subway station here in New York. And every time I'm riding up them, 
I always like, I always <laughs> like look at the top and I'm like, what if Ryan Philippe is there? Like it just, I mean, it's so silly, but it's like, I think my law, I think what I'm not to be redundant, but it's like my advice, another way of even phrasing that advice is like, stop living a movie in your head and like live your life, like li- live the life that you actually yeah. are living, like stop living a narrative you're creating for yourself and live your life like go through the door that is open to you and mm. participate in in what's in front of you because isaac you're not the first person to say that to me somebody else said it to me and i can't remember who but i think they said that disney movies and these hollywood rom-coms have actually done so much damage to our generation in terms of their expectations of romance and how they navigate and how they handle their romantic well, relationships that's good to hear. i mean and i think it does damage in straight relationships too i mean they i mean the heterosexual courtship model is so fucked to begin with and so sexist and patriarchal but i but especially for queer people you know i mean we didn't we didn't have a lot of sort of folklore you know we, we didn't have a lot of and and that's that's changing now thankfully Example, but yeah. um you know we, we didn't have a lot of models and so you know i there was no yeah I, I think it makes all. sense that so much of it is is fantastical in our minds and and linked to fantasy because you know we just didn't have anything to tether ourselves to 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 follow other than other than these stories we saw i'm having an oprah moment seriously like i'm having a real light bulb all my emojis are going <laughs> off and everything that is so true <laughs> that's that's really hitting the nail on the head because i've I've experienced that quite similarly to you as well. I mean, I based everything on on fantasy, on TV shows, because there was no, there were no examples around you or in the media or anything. So you kind of create your own, don't you? And they become your reference points then as you go through life. Yeah, they do, for sure. Isaac, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I'm looking forward to all many more books and TV shows and best of luck with everything in the future. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you.